So this morning, we're beginning a three-week series in the book of Joel. This is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. So if you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to op- or grab one. There's some under chairs nearby you. Uh, you can find Joel. Just look in the table of contents, and it'll give you the page number there. And, you know, the book of Joel doesn't get a lot of airtime. It's often overlooked for a few reasons. So it's one of the 12 minor prophets, which often get overlooked. They can be difficult to understand, and you really need to have a sense of the whole Scripture um, to appreciate them and understand them well. It also uh, includes poetry, and poetry takes work to understand, right? You have to slow down and be thoughtful in your reading, and this is a good thing because Joel doesn't just deliver abstract ideas with a few propositions for us, uh, you know, like sin is a problem, judgment's coming, God is gracious. It doesn't just state those. It invites us to enter in and experience the wonder of who God is, the reality of His judgment, the hope of His grace. And these metaphors help us to understand perhaps familiar concepts in a fresh way. And so it's also overlooked because this is short, and it talks a lot about locusts. So it's easy to dismiss, but this is important for us. It's written to help God's people understand how to respond to disaster. Joel is writing God through Joel is communicating to his people um, to awaken, awaken them from their spiritual apathy and their sin and their distance from God. He wants them to feel the reality of God's judgment, to wonder at God's character and his grace and his patience, and to hope in our bright eternal future. So this first message will be from the longest part of the book, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 17. We're going to read the whole thing together in a few moments here. And we do this because we believe that this time is not just um, for me to get up here and share insights and reflections on life and culture and spiritual things with you. Uh, but my job is to, to, for us together to read God's Word and then, as First Timothy 4 says, to read the Scripture and then to teach and exhort and encourage from it. So we're going to hear God's voice, and then we're going to consider what God has to say um, to us. And so here's the message of the text. Even though we do deserve a devastating judgment for our sin, it's God, His gracious character, that gives us confident hope that He'll receive us when we return to Him. So let's read Joel together through chapter 2, verse 17. Here's God's Word. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So what is this that's happened? Verse 4, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, because it's cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. 
The fields are destroyed and the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because of the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Verse 14, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty comes, is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Chapter 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like a garden, the garden of Eden before them. But behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way, they do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Verse 10, the earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, verse 13, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. And say, spare your people, O Lord, 
and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word, and we pray now for the blessing only you can give. So we pray that your spirit would give us understanding and transform our hearts and our deepest desires that we might think rightly, feel rightly, and live faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. So this text, an extensive description of devastation, and it teaches us how to respond to devastation. It ultimately reminds us that though we deserve a devastating judgment for our sin, God's character gives us confidence that he gives mercy when we come to him. Now, whenever you study a text, it's, incredible, it's really important to understand that um, texts have structure. There's sections, there's movement toward them, so there's parts here, and that helps us follow the flow of thought and hear the message and grasp the meaning here. So, in this text, there's three big movements. Chapter 1, and then chapter 2, verses 11, or 1 to 11, and then chapters, chapter 2, verses 11, or 12 to 17. So there's three movements, and we can summarize them with three phrases. Lament the locusts, sound the alarm, and rend the heart. So first, we'll just walk through these together. Lament the locusts, chapter 1. God is delivering a message through his prophet Joel here. We don't know much about the prophet Joel. It's debated when exactly this was written, but it's clearly after a devastating natural disaster. In verse 2, he says that no devastation like this has happened to them before. So what happened? Well, it was a devastating locust invasion. Look at verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now, this may not sound that serious to us. Most of us haven't experienced a locust invasion, anything like this. We see these little creatures. Kids, you can put them in a bug box and watch them eat leaves. Uh, Not that crazy. Some of you may have experienced a cicada invasion. I remember the cicada invasion of 2007 when I lived in the Chicagoland area. I was working in landscaping, and they covered the trees. They covered the plants. The noise was incredibly loud. They covered the ground, and I had the sad and unfortunate job of mowing the grass. So I was always sad about that. It wasn't just the grass that got mowed. Um, But the locust invasion here wasn't just an annoyance like that was. It was a devastation. These locust plagues have happened at various points in history, even to this very same land of Israel at different times. One of the more recent ones happened to Jerusalem in 1915, and you could read about it. It lasted for about a half a year, in some places a little longer, and when the the description is from 1915, when these locusts were swarming in the sky, the sun went dark. It was like a, a dark cloud over the land. Um, There were waves that came at different times, tens of thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them coming, covering the ground. One wave would overtake the land and just move through and completely devastate a field. And then they'd lay their eggs. And so then the next generation would come shortly after them and devastate everything even more. And then another wave. And then... It was described almost like an army covering the ground. 
Um, the ground was left without vegetation, trees without leaves. They said a fig tree could have its leaves completely consumed in minutes. They crawled up over walls and fences and into buildings and through windows. So that's just what happened in 1915. And the devastation that Joel is describing is similar but worse. Look at the description here. Various parts of the society are called to lament and grieve throughout chapter 1. They're all affected in different ways. We'll just look at some highlights here. So verse 5. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it's cut off from your mouth. Now, wine was a staple in that culture. It was present at celebrations. It's a symbol of joy. And here it's saying, the vineyards are destroyed by the locusts, and so the wine is gone. Verse 6 describes these locusts as a powerful nation coming across the land with lion's teeth because they just chomp through the whole society. Uh, and destroy everything. Verse 11 addresses the farmers. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. So all the grain is gone. There's going to be no harvest. Verse 12 says the fruit trees are destroyed. Then he calls on the priests to lament because at the end of verse 13, the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So sacrifices are stopping at the temple because there's nothing to offer. There's no grain to offer the Lord in the temple. There's no wine to offer the Lord. And the priests lived off some of these uh, sacrifices as well. So look at verse 17. The storehouses are desolate. In verse 18, even the cattle and sheep can't eat. So animals are famished and dying, which means the people also won't have animals to eat either. Hordes of locusts swarm everywhere, darkening the sky, covering the ground. Verse 16 summarizes the result. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. So their joy is gone. Natural disaster, a crashed economy, widespread anxiety about food, depression rates spiking. And this locust plague was probably not limited to a few months. Chapter 3 refers to the time when God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. So, we know a bit of this from the past year, don't we? Just a bit. The locusts are little harmless creatures just munching on plants. You get enough of them, and it's absolutely devastating. And COVID-19 little tiny virus, invisible to us, can devastate a globe, can spread and overtake, and the results are similar. Health problems, empty storehouses, economic uncertainty, strain on employment, spiked depression rates, joy and gladness drying up. And so what's the response to all of this to be? What should the first response be? We learn from this chapter that the first response is to lament. We see calls to, to lament woven through this chapter. They're to wail and weep and grieve, and they're called to cry out to God in their sorrow, and that's what lament is. And it's a fitting first response to the pandemic we've been experiencing as well. It's right to lament what happened and what is happening. I wonder if some of you need to hear that you have permission to grieve any kind of situation, but this one as well. Our first response can sometimes be just to get more information. And then our second response is to 
keep refreshing and getting more information and more information and more information. Um, Our first response might be to be anxious. Do we have everything we need? How can we make sure? And here, and those are fine, but we need to pause and grieve because sometimes we need to open up space to just lament and feel what we are made as humans to feel. We need to be okay with walking through sorrow, not just trying to get to the end of it. But Israel isn't just called to grieve, they're called to lament. Lamenting is about taking our sorrow and bringing it to God. It's grieving in prayer to God. Mark Vrogop, pastor down the road here, wrote a helpful book on lament called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And here's how he put it. He said, lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. Lament is how Christians grieve Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Some of us may need to learn to do that kind of lamenting and to create space in our lives to do that. In our culture, we tend to just want to move quickly past any pain. We just want to get to the results. We want to fix the problems. We want to rush to end the sorrow. But the biblical path is first to bring our sorrow to God, to express our sorrow to God, and then in doing so, begin to find our hope in Him. So the first movement here of this text is lament the locust, chapter 1. Second, sound the alarm. In Joel 2, 1 through 11, Joel warns Israel of worse to come. Verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Why? What's the crisis now? He says, for the day of the Lord is coming it is near. Now, this phrase, day of the day of the Lord, is used throughout the prophets. Of all the prophets that use this phrase, Joel gives the most focused attention to it. So, what's the day of the Lord? Well, it's helpful to not think of it as just one particular day on the calendar. Um, instead, think of it more like when someone wins a victory, we say it was their day, right? So, later today, whose day will it be? Right By tonight, it will either be the day of Mahomes or the day of Brady. Who will, one person will bring victory to their team, defeat to the other, and it will be their day. That's a bit of how the prophets use this phrase. It's a day when the Lord brings deliverance and or judgment. So there's many days of the Lord that happen and have happened. It's a time when God judges people or delivers people, and it's all building in history to a great climactic day of the Lord to come. So here the emphasis is on judgment, not deliverance. It's a judgment against God's people. So that's why Joel says, sound the alarm, wake up. And what's the judgment that's coming? Uh, Bible students and scholars have debated what Joel's actually referring to here in this second section of chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. He's either referring to another locust invasion, describing them again like an army invading, or he's describing an actual army coming and describing them like a locust invasion. I think he's describing another terrible locust invasion here. Um, One reason, look at verses 4 and 5. It says, their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots. They leap on the tops of mountains. I think the most natural reading here is that this invasion is like an army, but it's not an army. And that's how the locust invasion of chapter 1 was described like an army. The locust invasion I shared from 1915, the way that they just described it, when you read reports, they describe these locusts like an army, marching densely in order, just overtaking 
climbing over walls, devastating the place. And either way, whether it's an army like locusts or locusts like an army, the result is the same and it's devastating. And here's the surprise and the main thing that we need to see about this. God is the one who's ultimately in charge. He's bringing this about. Look at verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. So this is his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So God is in charge. He's not just portrayed as using this terrible event. He's directing it. This is his day, the day of the Lord, and he's bringing judgment. And so we want to ask why. Why would he do this? And this is why knowing the whole story of the Bible is important. Israel was in a covenant relationship with God. God rescued them from Egypt in the Exodus, brought them to himself, and they entered into this covenant relationship with the Lord. He said that he was setting before them blessings and curses. If they trusted and loved and obeyed him, they would live a life blessed in this land and flourish like this, the land would be like Eden. And if they hated him and rejected him and continued to disobey him, then they would receive the curses of this covenant. And they're laid out in several places. One of them is Deuteronomy 28, and it describes one of these curses as locusts coming upon them. And so as Israel experienced this locust plague, they would remember that this is what God promised for unfaithfulness to him. They would also remember the other time this happened in history, which was when God was judging the Egypt for their hardness of heart and, and enslaving the people of Israel. And so now they see this plague of locusts not on Egypt, but on themselves as God's enemies because they're setting themselves against, themselves against him. So God's the one bringing about this locust invasion. The prophet Amos says something similar. He says in Amos 3, 6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? So there's an important theological lesson here for us. Um, maybe you're thinking, what about today? What about other natural disasters? Is God in control of those as well? And how do we process this? Well, there's a few different ways people answer the question. Here's four of them. One, first there's um, an atheist view. Many can't believe that there would be a God who would allow these kinds of things to happen, who could be in control of calamity. I was talking with someone just a couple weeks ago recently who had gone through a devastating situation in life, just heart-wrenching, um, and it led him to conclude there must not be a God. Uh, he would not have let that suffering happen. So God must not exist, just disaster just happens, and there's no ultimate overarching purpose for it. Another answer would be what we can call the deistic view or a deistic-like view. Uh, they look at locust plagues and would conclude that this is just how the, the world works. God set the world up, and he does exist, but he just set up the world to work a certain way, and these kinds of things are just going to happen. Another response would be what we can call kind of a religious moralist view. They think these kinds of disasters are always a specific response to specific sins, and we can discern that. So these are the ones that show up on TV and that the media love to listen to, sadly, who's to, when a disaster happens in some city, they say, well, I'll tell you exactly why this happened. 
Because that city in particular has this sin, and God is judging them for that sin. If you're suffering, you're getting what you deserve. They're like Job's friends. Job, if you're suffering, what'd you do? Fourth, there's the view of Joel in the rest of the Bible. Here we see that God is in control, and He is wise, and He is good. Joel does not flinch to affirm that God is in control of this disaster. Amos affirms that God is sovereign over calamity when it comes to a city. We may speak of God permitting things to happen, but we also need to affirm that if God permits something, then He can stop it, and if He doesn't stop it, He has purposes for allowing that to happen. So, unlike the moralist view, not every disaster, though, is a response to a specific sin in a location. Sometimes it is a direct judgment like what we see here in Joel, like this locust plague. And God sends them a message saying, wake up, this is for you. Um, But sometimes it's not. Sometimes God permits it or brings it about for other reasons. In everything God does, He's doing hundreds of things that we may not have a clue about, but He has wise purposes. So what do we do with this? How do we then respond to calamity that we see and we experience? Well, I think one of our responses should be what we see here. Sound the alarm. Know that the ultimate day of the Lord is coming, and it's a day of judgment. Some disasters are a direct warning like this locust plague we're reading about. Um, But every disaster is still a general warning, is it not? Think about it. Natural disasters and other forms of suffering are all a result of sin's existence and presence in the world. God created the world good. The world was to exist with in perfect harmony between people and their God and one another in the world No locust plagues, no COVID-19, no cancer, no hurricanes. But when humanity sinned and rejected God, God brought this curse over the ground. And now this world is groaning with its brokenness, waiting for Jesus to return and a new creation to come. And until that day, it's filled with this suffering as a response to sin. And so all of this suffering serves to wake humanity up, to wake us all up. Because we all participate in this devastating problem of sin. It's a warning to us about a coming day of judgment. When God will judge the world, there's a great day of the Lord coming to judge sin and deliver His people. So I mentioned last week that as a family, we're reading through the Gospel of Luke in the evening. So we're just going through a couple paragraphs at a time. And last night's reading was really helpful for even processing this very point. So Luke 13, here's how it helps us. Some people told Jesus about this situation, terrible situation that happened to some Galileans. And listen to Jesus' response. So a calamity happens, and people are asking Jesus, how do we think about that kind of calamity? How do we respond to calamity? Disaster. Here's Jesus' response. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? In other words, do you think that, that was, they're somehow worse and that's why it happened? And others were spared because they weren't as bad? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then he brings up another situation, generalizing it further. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. 
So when disaster strikes a city or a nation or a family, we do not say, do you think that you're somehow better than them? That they were worse sinners than you and that's why that happened? Sometimes the Lord does give direct responses to sin. But any disaster is this reminder from Jesus. No. But unless you repent, you'll likewise perish because a day is coming when God will judge the world in righteousness. So when we see this locust plague or when we hear about a hurricane hitting a city or when we see someone affected uh, by COVID-19, what are we to think? We're to think, do I think I'm a worse sinner than them? Or they're a worse sinner than me and that's why that happened to them? No. But unless I repent, I'll likewise perish. Jesus is showing that all calamities should remind us that a day of judgment is coming. And unless we all repent, we'll all likewise perish in the end. So this leads to the final part of this. Lament the locusts, sound the alarm, rend the heart. Look at the first three words of verse 12. Yet even now. Yet even now. What hope? They've rejected God. They deserve the judgment that's coming. He's warning them that it's on the horizon and it would be just for him to bring it. But there's also this deep sense that God does not want them to experience this. So he gives them hope. It's not too late. Yet even now. And then he says, says, return to me. Return to me with all your heart. Notice how personal this is. He doesn't just say, return to religion. Would you return to keeping rules? Would you return to better habits? All of those are important and would be entailments. But fundamentally, he says, return to me. It's personal. At the bottom of every sin is a heart that turns away from God and leaves God. And God says, return to me. And then he says, return to me with all your heart, not just your mind, not just actions, your heart, which in the Bible refers to really the core of who we are, the place of our deepest motives and thoughts and desires, control center for who we are. He's saying, I want you. I want the deepest part of you. I want your whole self. Return to me with all your heart in your core. So how do we return to him? Well, we have to hear him say this to us. We have to hear him saying, I want you. I love you. Return to me. I made you and I love you and you've left. So return. And here's the mystery of what it means to return to God. It's both healing and painful at the same time. It's painful because it requires repentance. Look at what he calls us to do in verse 13. Rend your hearts. Rend your hearts and not your garments. That word rend means rip. Right? They'd rip their clothes in lament and grief. And he's saying, if you're going to rip anything, don't just do a show. Rip your heart. Rend your heart. Have your heart broken with not just lament for the locust, but lament for your sin. Lament for breaking fellowship with me. Grieve. And then he says, he gives them this great hope. He's the creator of all things. Will he receive us? Look at the rest of verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. That's incredible. It's essentially a quotation from Exodus 34. Shows up all the time through the Old Testament um, and in different forms in the New. And so this is how God describes his character. And this is how he wants us to see him. 
He's saying, look up from the locust and look at me. Look up from the disaster you experience, look at Jesus. What do we see? Look at each phrase here, gracious and merciful. He's not looking for the first opportunity to drop the hammer. He's gracious and merciful. He's not trigger happy. There's more mercy in him than there's sin in us. He is more eager to forgive us than we are to sin. We can never outsin his mercy. He's slow to anger. This plague came on Israel after centuries of rebellion. He's incredibly patient with us. He's slow to be angry and quick to be gracious. He's abounding in steadfast love. He is love. He's the source of all love. He's an overflowing fountain of love for sinners. And he relents over disaster. He's not eager to bring disaster or any disaster. He, he does this to wake us up to return to him, at least in part. And we see how deep this grace and love is in Jesus. Think about it. There was another day in history when the sky went dark. This imagery here of sky going dark, judgment falling, the day of the Lord. That day when Jesus was crucified was the day of the Lord. It was a day of judgment, and darkness came when Jesus was on the cross. So what happened is the future end-time climactic culminating day of the Lord judgment that is drawing near was brought into history, and God's judgment was poured out on Jesus in the middle of history so that all who take refuge in him have already passed through that judgment. That as we anticipate then the day of the Lord to come, we don't need to fear because all the dark judgment fell on Jesus instead of us if we're united to him by faith. He drake down every last drop of judgment for us. So the world may not know it, but a day of judgment's coming. And the greatest news is that a day of judgment has already come on the cross over Jesus for us. And so we don't need to just fear that day, but we need to let the fear of the coming day drive us to take refuge in Jesus and find relief and great comfort with this God who relents over disaster and it overflows with mercy. So I wonder if you have not yet returned to the Lord. Maybe this morning you're realizing you have never ripped your heart in repentance and returned to him. He invites you to do that today. He invites you to return to him. And you can have great confidence because the God who made you loves you. And he's shown that by letting his judgment be poured out on Jesus instead of you if you come to him and receive his grace. And no one's too far away from God for this. He says, yet even now, return to me with all your heart and I'll receive you. And then for everyone who has done that decisively, the Christian life is maintaining that posture. As we sin, as we drift, we wake up every day needing to return to him in some way, rending our heart, returning to him, having this humble posture of gratefulness and joy in his mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and how you give us hope. We thank you for teaching us about where history is heading and your great mercy and love for us in Jesus. And so we pray that you would work deep in our hearts, cause us to return to you and stay with you and keep returning as we may drift. And we pray that you would use us who have returned to you to welcome and invite others to you as well.
In Jesus' name, amen.